You're listening to another great podcast in the MyMac Podcasting Network. Hello and welcome to another edition of the show where we take a wander around the week in Apple, Apple News, Reviews, Technology, Associated Products and all sorts of other things that catch our eye. This is another episode of the Essential Apple Podcast. Hello and welcome to this week's episode. And this week I am joined by Nick Riley and John Martellaro, who is the host of the uh, Background Mode podcast over at the Mac Observer, and of course the author of the Particle Debris column, which uh, you've no doubt heard me mention before. So uh, welcome, John, and it's great to have you on. Hey, it's nice to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, No problem. And uh, Nick, how are you, mate, after all that struggling with Discord? I'm a, I'm okay, thank you. <laughs> yeah, we we had a bit of a, an issue with Discord. We've uh, we've fallen back to Skype actually, but uh, there we go. Um, well, there we are. Uh, well, John, would you like to tell us a little bit about both your podcast and your columns over at the Mac Observer before we go any further? Sure. Um, several years ago, I started a Friday column called Particle Debris to take off on a physics term from particle accelerators where there's debris uh, as a result of the collisions, but that's just my physics background talking. What I try to do in the uh, column is collect together off the beaten track things that the Mac Observer headlines didn't pick up, things that we didn't get to, didn't have time for, that I still think are interesting. So I typically uh, pick one article of the week and talk about it, and that's page one. And then on page two, I collect together all the other things I found that, as you said in the preamble, were interesting to me that um, I wanted to share with the readers. And that's published every Friday afternoon at the Mac Observer. Uh, Background Mode is a show I started about three years ago to interview interesting technical people, to hear their story, their career. Um, there's, there's lots of people we've heard of and we know about on the internet, writers, technologists, CEOs, ex-Apple employees, uh, researchers. But we don't really know their story. We don't know how they got where they are. And it's always been a fascinating story for me to uh, hear people talk about the, the uh, serendipity, the coincidences, the people they got to know, the jobs they got by accident, and uh, how their career developed and how they arrived at where they are today. I've had some really interesting guests on that show. One you may know is John Lunn, the uh, British composer who, who wrote the score for Downton Abbey and, and, and the Shetland TV shows. Right. He was uh, he was amazing, and I actually recorded some snippets from iTunes <clears throat> and played music from the shows Shetland and Downton Abbey. And he told me about the development of the music and the instruments that were used. So that was a fascinating show. Another great uh, guest I had was Dr. Alan Stern, the head of the Pluto New Horizons project, the fellow who who saw the the Pluto New Horizons spacecraft from design through launch and its long journey to Pluto and the photography that it did. So uh, I've had some very interesting astronomers and ex-Apple people like Jean-Louis Gasset. And it's just been a lot of fun meeting all these different people, hearing how they arrive where they are and and letting them tell their story for about 30 minutes. So that's background mode in the Mac Observer. Excellent. 
Excellent. I will have to look that up, John. Uh, I've been aware of it for some time, but as we were saying before the show, there are just <laughs> there aren't enough hours in the day to listen to all the podcasts you want to and do anything else. I'd, I'd spend my whole life listening to podcasts, I think. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, likewise. Yeah, never, you know, I have to, I have to sort of trim out. I'm constantly trimming out the ones that I'm finding I'm not really listening to. There we go. Um, well, this week. Of course, Apple is the first public company to be worth $1 trillion, according to the BBC News. Um, something that there's been a lot of hoopla about. Um, I don't know about you you two, but I'm much of the opinion. Um, Whoop-de-doo. Um. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's a number, but it's based on US dollars. So if it were in British pounds, it wouldn't be a trillion. Yeah. Um, $150 billion. So numerically, it's just an accident of the financial system and the number of shares that are out there. But Jim Cramer wrote an interesting article on Friday at uh, CNBC about the psychological impact of it. And what I thought was interesting is that the reaction, at least what I've read so far, is that the reaction is very positive. Jim Cramer tells a story about Cisco uh, many years ago reaching a, a half a billion dollar trillion valuation. And people thought this was kind of crazy and over the top and had trouble getting accustomed to it. And there, there's always some specter of whether a company is too big. And what I think is interesting is, is that because of the strong values that Tim Cook and Apple employees have exhibited and because of the legacy of Steve Jobs and because of what Apple tries to achieve and their adherence to the principles of Steve, giving us great tools and, and protecting our privacy and helping with security and, and, and really you know, delivering a secure iPhone, that there hasn't been a lot of negative pushback that I've seen, fear or concern or negativism about how Apple's just too big and they're going to run rush out over us. We might feel that way about some other companies, which I may or may not name, <laughs> but <laughs> we don't feel that way about Apple. We're sort of rooting for their success because of the character of the company. And, and so I think the trillion dollar valuation kind of helped us celebrate Apple's success in its long journey back from the days in 1997 when they almost didn't make payroll and almost went bankrupt. Yep, that is true. I think their portfolio, uh, the fact that they've kept their portfolio of, of products fairly narrow has, has actually managed to, I think that's why people aren't afraid that they're going to break up i think part of the problem with a lot of big companies is they they try and diversify into too many things uh and then bits of the company start having problems and whereas apple always sort of stayed fairly fairly core to what it what its original idea was I, i'm fascinated actually by this there's a little infographic on this bbc article um which shows how quickly it's all happened um so october 2001 the ipod was launched and the market value then was six billion uh, by the time the iPhone was launched in 2007, it was 106 billion. Uh, iPhone 6 in 2014 was 603 billion, and here we are in August uh, 2018, and we're one trillion. It's just a, an amazing meteoric climb, really. Isn't it? That is a, you know, that is a sort of uh, exponential growth. It's uh, pretty amazing, and um, it's I interesting that Apple is uh, doing this because. 
achieving this trillion dollar mark because, you know, as we know, Apple's been buying back stock right and left. So the number of outstanding shares is steadily declining. But as Apple has bought, bought back stock, the value of each share has gone up in proportion. Mm. And so the issue was, can Apple can continue to buy back stock at the rate they're doing and have investors continue to be optimistic? I, I've been told by experts, one of them is Brian Chaffin at the Mac Observer, that the companies start buying back stock because they feel like the price they're earning is not very good and, and could be better. And investors are appreciative of that. And so they invest in a stock that's giving them a good price to earnings ratio. And it's also a precursor to uh, something big coming where Apple expects the strong position to be uh, further enhanced by a product that, uh, that's coming out. You know, Apple spent $14 billion on R&D um, in 2017. And where that money is going, we don't know. But something's cooking. <laughs> Yeah, that was. It certainly isn't showing up in the Mac. (laughs) No, that is true. Yeah, I read that. I read that. Um, they they sort of um, their R and D has skyrocketed because traditionally Apple, um, you know, their R and D budget has been relatively restrained in you know in proportion to their revenues. So, um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see what 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 next. (laughs) Well, yeah, that is true. Well, is it? We were talking about that at the Mac Observer the other day. Uh, we were trying to think about where the money is going. It still might be sunk into autonomous design. We don't know where Apple's going. We don't think they're building a real car. We think they're building a system that can be implemented into a vehicle. Uh, I think they're spending a lot of money on artificial intelligence. I'm hoping that Apple's thinking about combining autonomous systems with artificial intelligence to be ready to counter any family robot that might come out from Amazon. But we haven't heard even a rumor, nothing nope. about a family robot. We do know that uh, the Mayfield Robotics announced this week that they're suspending the development of their Curry home family robot, which was a sad state of affairs. But uh, I've been, as I've been writing for years now, I think there's no better company on the planet considering Apple's focus on privacy and security to build a family robot we can trust. So I'm rooting for Apple. Maybe that's where the money is going. That's my best guess. Mm, that'd be interesting. That would be very interesting, wouldn't it? I'd... Because Apple are so secretive, and obviously there's all this talk about, you know, there's been all this talk about Project Titan and a car, and is it a real car, or is it a platform, is it this, is it that? But of course, those things effectively overlap because autonomous vehicles use a lot of the same sort of technology so whilst you're researching that you're you're, you're probably digging out all sorts of um, nuggets of information that would be useful in the building of a you know some sort of robot or uh, whatever else. I would have thought any kind of um, navigation um, autonomous navigation would be usable almost anywhere in, in anything so yeah, absolutely. If you want something that works in the home, then it needs to be able to navigate the home in the same way as a car can navigate a road. And, exactly. Uh, so, yeah, that'd be interesting. One um, of the tip offs for me about Apple building a car has been that there's been no rumors of a factory. You know, in order to go into production with a car, you need a million square feet. You need these giant robots that are built in Japan that put cars together. 
And it would be very hard to keep a secret to yes. build a big factory like that where you'd have a production line of vehicles. So you could probably disguise the R&D in a secret building somewhere of a robot factory for prototypes. But I've always thought that because we never saw any indication Apple was building a car factory that that they're not going to compete against Tesla. They're not going to build a real car. So it's fascinating to think about how autonomy can be folded into robots, as you said, Nick, or something else. Mm -hmm. Very much. Because the the thing about the car that's always intrigued me is, of course, we know that that Johnny is a huge car head, car fan, and and so is his um, chum, um, Mr. Newson. So... I'm not sure. It could, although I'm not. I'm not. I don't think Apple are building a car right now, as you say, John. You you know you can't disguise the kind of um, technology and the you know floor space and whatnot that's needed for that. But I could see Apple launching, um, you know, an autonomous car platform, and then you know uh, Johnny and Mark Newson saying, "And here is an Apple car." But no doubt it would cost as much as a Ferrari because. <laughs> It would be hand milled from unobtainium. <laughs> but <laughs> um, but e- yeah. even then, even then, you would run into problems because, I mean, for them to build a, a platform, a, a self-driving car platform, if you like, they'd have to test that. So they'd still have to be visible. Um, it's still really hard to hide because well, they do. They have, have to f- get it out there on the roads. Well, they have a fleet of fifty-five cars registered for autonomous testing in California. Right. They do actually, um, that was a story we covered, I don't know, I covered that, I don't know, a few weeks back now. Um, but it's a, it's, a little bit, it's a little bit like Tesla and Google. I mean, you, we hear a lot about these um, cars being tested on the roads and whatever, and I think it's highly unlikely that Apple will have um, somehow managed to keep it <laughs> out of the eyes of people who are looking out for this kind of thing. Yeah, but apparently... I have an idea. Can, I have a thought. Yeah. Just occurred to me just now while you were talking maybe apple's going to build a fleet of little vehicles that are street legal but are not designed for passengers they're little mini mini cars like like mini cooper sized cars that roam around and build our map system Um, and deliver goods and then provide delivery service there's lots of things you could do in that area there's there's a huge i mean and it's like in um where is it is it south korea they've got these they have those uh, like food delivery bots that are like a uh, like the sort yeah, of size I've seen those. sort of like the size well, of a mailman. Are they testing? Cut. I think they're testing those in um, Milton Keynes. All right. Yeah. I saw a podcast a little while ago. Um, uh, someone called James who uh, owns a Tesla, and um, he uh, he was he also in, likes um, skateboarding, and he was skateboarding along, and suddenly one of these things came trundling along the path towards him. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, they're being tested all over the place. Um, but I mean, they're they're a lot smaller than a Mini Cooper. I mean, they're, they're, they've got sort of six wheels and look a little bit like something that's come off the moon. Well, I was going to say uh, they're, they're a bit like a travel trunk, aren't they? Yes. Yeah. On yeah. wheels. I, I, I always worry about those because there's turning along a sidewalk trying to deliver a pizza to someone. And it gets robbed, you know, and somebody says, ah, oh, there's a warm pizza inside this guy. I'm going to hijack it. I'm going to pry it open with a screwdriver. Free food. <laughs> Free food, yeah. There we go. Oh, dear. It's going to have to have a built-in 911 satellite connection. 
Help! I'm help, help. <laughs> Another thing. Warning, this this truck is, you know, electrified, so if you touch it before it reaches its destination, <laughs> you get a whole voltage jolt. Warning, you've been photographed. <laughs> Step away from the vehicle. <laughs> More importantly, you've been in phot- photographed eating pizza. Yeah. <laughs> you have five seconds to comply. Oh, dear. Um, right, well... Um, and then uh, there's a link here. Nine to five, Mac published the uh, email that uh, Uncle Tim sent to uh, all the Apple employees, um, well where he said, um, "You know, we're proud to have reached one trillion. While we are proud of this achievement, it is not the most important measure of our success. Financial returns are simply the result of Apple's innovation and putting our products and customers first. So uh, there we go." Um, They've all done very well. Yes, it's all done very well indeed. Uh, Yes, uh, as Steve always did in moments like this, we should look forward to Apple's bright future and great work we will do together. So there you are. Um, Although I think he's right, you know, uh, my somewhat, you know, dismissive thing at the start here when we said a trillion dollars, like, you know, whoop-de-doo. I think because Tim, you know, I think Tim looks at it that way. It's just a number and it's just generated by the financial market. It doesn't, Obviously, it you know indicates that Apple has become a monstrous, um, you know, huge conglomerate um, entity. But in and of itself, it doesn't you know it's not really worthy of anything very much, is it? Other than to say we apparently people think we're worth worth the most money in the world, and apparently that was a re- relatively close run between them and Amazon and um, I forget who the third one was. Not might have been Google. I'm not sure. So there we go. Um, this this one here we had uh, I think I found this one which was how to get low power uh, mode on your Mac right now and this was on the cult of Mac um, and Alistair Jenks uh, said that um, he thinks somebody there must read Marco's blog because apparently uh, Marco had uh, Mac low power mode uh, first and he pointed <laughs> out um, he, he he points out the link to the actual um, the actual uh, product which is called the turbo boost switcher for os 10 um which is i believe free to download um and then there's a pro uh, a pro version if you want to support them by giving them some money um and what it actually allows you to do um is turn off the you know the turbo boost on the on the cpu um so you know if you have a you know a macbook or a macbook pro and you're worried about stretching your battery life out you can uh you know, obviously, at the cost of performance, you can prolong your battery life in the same way as you can, you know, on your iOS device, switch into low the low power mode. So, um, I thought that was quite natty. I'm not, uh, you know, it's not an Apple-approved but, thing, but uh, but isn't isn't the Turbo Boost thing meant to cut in when you need it? Uh, or am I misunderstanding what no, it is? Yeah, but um, well, it does. Yes, it, it, the the whole idea is ramping ramping the CPU up when when you need more power. But of course, that also is more it uses more battery life. So the 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 idea of yeah. this is if you need to prolong your battery life, by you turn it on. But yes, it, they make it quite clear that it's at the at the cost of performance. Oh, I see. Yeah, you know, in the same I'm, way as you being someone who doesn't use a laptop very often. It's... No, no, <laughs> it doesn't and, affect me very and much. It doesn't but, really uh... affect me very much. But I, I you know, um, no, I guess if you're, you know, your your battery's getting low and you need to use your laptop and you 
you know you really feel you need to stretch that out i i you know i think i might install it on my laptop as the free version to have a have a go with i mean i'm really far from a power point so it's somewhat irrelevant really but just yeah, do you know do you know i i find um i mean i under i understand why some people find this fascinating and um i all, i'm also part of a forum um for electric cars because you know i own one yeah and oh, sometimes uh, i've got a leaf oh uh, i've um, seen those those are pretty cool yeah. Do you have uh, one of the new ones with the longer range or no no i've got uh well i've got the in between one i've got the 30 kilowatt hour one now so that's the it was like the last of the first generation ones um and it's great i mean i love the car but i do find that in forums you quite people quite often get really hung up on um on battery performance for exactly the same reason you might do on a laptop um you know you want to get as much range out of the car as you can and you get people saying, oh, yeah, well, you shouldn't really, you should try and keep the battery in the sweet spot between 20 and 80 percent. And uh, you should you should charge it in this way and not in this way. And don't do too many rapid charges. And, um, and I must admit, I get a bit tired of it eventually. And I just based someone had asked for advice and I ended up posting, look, just drive it and enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, uh, do you ever get range anxiety? Um Mm-hmm. Yeah, occasionally, only very occasionally. I mean, in all honesty, most of my driving is uh, is commuting, and I only commute um, twenty five miles there and twenty five miles back. I can charge at work. Um, it, it it really. I mean, it re- I charge it just like I do my phone. And um, it, I, on the whole, no, I don't get range anxiety. I don't. I barely think about it. Um, and I think. I think part of the problem with electric cars is people very much try to view them the same way they do their petrol and diesel cars. Um, is that and they're a bad idea? Yeah, well, they're a completely different kettle of fish. To use but, they're, fish but they're different because the immaturity of the battery technology. Isn't the goal to be able to treat your electric car the same way you treat your regular car with no concern no, not, at all? Well, yes. Yes, I agree. Yes, you should be able to. But the it's not necessary to have oodles and oodles of range to do that. I mean, maybe in America, it's a different thing because you're a much bigger country. Right. But in the UK, you really do not need, and the vast majority of people only drive 20 or 30 miles a day, um, uh, particularly in the UK. But I think even in America, the, the figure isn't much higher. Um, uh, so on the whole, you don't need, uh, what, what I think what I'm getting at is um, you don't, People tend to think about electric cars in the same way they do petrol in the sense that they need to be able to charge it when they're getting somewhere. But the fact is, it becomes like a phone. You charge it when you're at home at night, and then you've got enough range for the next day. You don't think yeah. about it. And then you come home the following evening, and you might not need to plug it in that evening, but the following evening you may do. Uh, and you really just sort of treat it a bit like your phone, and you, you don't worry about it too much. So it, it, it's that that I was trying to get at is that, Whereas with a petrol and a diesel car, you have to think about uh, filling it up part of the way. And you don't worry about it because there's plenty of petrol stations. There's plenty of fuel Right. Stations. So you don't mind running around with a quarter tank of gas or maybe even an eighth of tank of gas because you know that it's only a few miles away to the nearest petrol station. But when you're in an electric car, when the, when the battery starts falling below a certain level, the anxiety level gets higher and higher. Yeah. And, and no, then, I want a full charge. I want a full charge all the time. <laughs> <laughs> yes. In all honesty, it's the beginning of driving with an electric car that feels really weird because you might see that you've got 
25 miles of range. And if you saw that on your petrol car, your light would be on. You'd be thinking, I've got to find a petrol station. I've got to find a station quick mm-hmm. because I'm going to run out. Um, but after a while, you think, well, actually, that's quite a long way. And I know I can rely on that 25 miles being 25 miles. So I don't really have to worry about it because my journey, my journeys aren't that long. Um, so it, it is a different mindset in many ways. And yes, you know, we all want more range. But in all honesty, most of us probably won't use it a lot of the you time. Know, you know, one of the things that fascinates me about these Tesla acceleration numbers is, is that you hear about the fantastic acceleration of the electric motors of the Teslas. And they can do zero to 60 and maybe three seconds or something like that at Tesla S. And then you hear about the maximum range maybe 240, 260 miles. But you never hear about what the range is after you've done one of these zero to 60 runs. <laughs> yeah. You, know, you start off, you light up the engine. You, I mean, the, you light up the system and it says your range is 240. And you go scooting onto the highway on-ramp and you do your zero to 60 or zero to 70 in four seconds. And all of a sudden it says your range is 90 miles within seconds. <laughs> I, I don't. I don't I, think it's, it, it drains as much as you might think of the battery. Uh, the fact is, most electric cars are, are reasonably nippy, even if uh, even if you can't. And they're nothing like. Uh, and I think the official for mine is about eleven seconds, but it feels a lot faster than that because you because you get all the torque straight away. Yeah. Um, I, I'm often leaving. Well, I always leave people at traffic lights because I, I'm not changing gear because it's continuous. And and I, I accelerate actually really quickly up to about forty miles an hour. And in a city, well, that's fine. That's all you need. It means that mm-hmm. driving becomes very relaxed because you don't have to think, uh, "Oh, I've got to get out of this junction now, and this this car's bearing down on me." When you know, that if you put your foot down, you'll go. You know, the, it's 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 quite different. I recommend what everyone is, to at least air, give it a try. What does running the air conditioner do to your battery life? Oh, almost nothing. Really. Yeah, very little. That's good to hear. Yeah, very little. Um, it's a few percent, a few percent overall of the battery, just you know, a handful of percentage points for the whole thing. Um, I Again, I don't think about it. Um, I'm one of these people who uh, you hear a lot of people talking about, you know, I, I, I did it without the air conditioning on. And, and when they were very new, you heard people saying, yeah, I drove from A to B and it was minus seven and I didn't have the heating on. <laughs> I, thought, <laughs> I thought they're absolutely bonkers. There's no way I'm going to do that. So, uh, no, I, I just have mine on my, um, um, uh, what's it called? What, the aircon? Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, it has another name, doesn't Not it? Well, the climate control. Climate control. Thank you. Yes, I just have the climate control set to the temperature. I like it. And then I forget about it. Uh, and it makes very little difference to the overall battery battery amount. Yeah, they're, co- they're built very efficiently. So. Sorry, that took the uh, whole conversation off in a completely different... Return from subroutine. Well, that's fair enough. Yes. Fair enough. <laughs> I don't know. You, as, you, as you pointed out well, before. We were, we were yeah. talking about... Whatever catches your eye. Uh, yes. Power mode on the Macintosh. And I was initially kind of skeptical about that because... Most of the time, you can control the the power by what you do with it, and there's you can manually shut things down. Spotlight indexing, I, I think you might even be able to turn off with a command line. Yeah, you can turn that off. Yeah. Yeah, I, it, it's just um, it caught my eye because it was like you know we all, we all have 
how often people use it. I don't know. I use it quite a lot, which is to turn on the low low power mode on you know on my phone. Um, yeah, and you know that turns off a whole load of things, background processing and fetching mail and all sorts of things. Um, I have found that turning off background mode really helps on my phone uh, app accessing uh, yeah. in the background. I always have those turned off and it has had zero impact on my life. Yeah. But, uh, it's definitely improved the battery life on my iPhone. So, you know, this, this, um, this turbo uh, boost controller or whatever, it is just, I, you know, I, I'm not sure that it's something that people really need, but it, in the same way as you were talking about range anxiety, Nick, I think it's one of these things where people feel they, oh, I've got, a, you know, I've got to go on this long journey without being able to plug in, so I really ought to do something to, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> to so, put or, or I suppose, the battery life, you know. Yeah, I suppose they could be, you know, doing a demo, uh, presentation later on and they just want to make sure that they're not going to run out of battery yeah, power before they just, get there. It's just... Fair um, you know, I, I just thought it was um, interesting. It, you know, there if you want it, as it were. Yes. Yeah. Um, that just kind of caught my attention. Um, and this one here, uh, this other one that caught my attention, again from the Cult of Mac, as it happens, uh, which was uh, Fitbit gives Apple Watch its only real competition, which kind of uh, refers back to something we were talking about um, last week, I think, which is when we were talking about the... Uh, 30% spike in Apple Watch sales. Yes, yeah. And um, we were kind of saying, you know, it said despite intense competition, and we were saying, is, is there really intense competition in the um, smartwatch market? Um, it would seem, uh, despite my saying that I was under the impression that Fitbit had been struggling, uh, according to this, Fitbit gives Apple Watch its only real competition. Um, so it seems that the Fitbit Versa um, smartwatch from Fitbit has kind of revived their fortunes and um, mm -hmm. according to this the smartwatch competition has come down to two players Apple Watch and the Fitbit leaving Samsung and other wearables well behind um, in the second quarter Apple stayed far ahead of even Fitbit which we kind of knew um, it says they sold 2.7 million devices in the April June period that's reasonably healthy <laughs> yeah I, I don't you know uh it's one of those where people, oh, it's a miserable failure. Well, it's only miserable failure if you compare it against the stratospheric success of, you know, something else. Um, and in all, and in all honesty, I mean, the fit, the Fitbits are significantly cheaper than. The, yeah, I mean, the, the, this watches. one. I think the. I think. So the if if you if your main interest is is fitness and whatever, then you you know you're going to you're perhaps going to be more drawn to that than uh, spending all the money on a on on a phone that you may not use all the features of. Yeah. Um, so. Hey, good on. I've talked on? to a few people who use Fitbits, and my my perception, it's just a very, very small sample, is is that they were a little bit reluctant to get embroiled in the technology of the phone yeah, and the sophistication of the watch and the cost, and that there's a, there's a pretty low entry point, uh, if, especially if they're an Android phone user, that they can get in, they can manage their health and fitness, they, they, they can see their their steps right on the watch face, which you can't do on the Apple Watch. And they're kind of easing themselves into the technology. My my guess is that once people start using Fitbits and get accustomed to the technology that they've got in mind, someday to escalate up to an Apple Watch. But I think right now, the complexity, the potential complexity and the cost of the Apple Watch and phone system kind of puts people a, a little bit off. That's yeah. 
just my perception. Yes, yeah. and, and I mean, one of the other paragraphs a bit lower down, it says, um, even though obviously the Apple Watch offers a far broader array of apps, um, the Versa does have much longer battery life and it costs $130 less. So, um, you know, there's fours and against, isn't there? Yeah, very much so. I mean, I, I've had a look, a look at this and it says, you know, uh, the Versa has emerged as the strongest competitor to the Apple Watch. But just under $200, you get a fitness tracker that can stream music to Bluetooth headphones, do calendar reminders and show notifications of calls and texts. Um, and, I'll, you know, it requires Bluetooth connection to a nearby phone and is geared more towards Android than iOS. Um, but there you go. I mean, I'll be honest, for a lot of people, that is probably... Yeah, you that know, covers most of what, what most people use their watches for. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think it does. So... Yeah. Um, a good on Fitbit because not long ago, you know, they were looking pretty, you know, pretty hammered. Um, yes. So there we go. I I think it's going to stay that way. My my prediction is that Apple has such huge financial resources that they can develop the technology to the point where it's irresistible. They can build watches that are lower cost. A company that's smaller, as we were talking about before with Mayfield Robotics. A company that's smaller doesn't have the huge financial resources, the R&D resources to go toe-to-toe with Apple. So while they may appeal to people on low cost for a while, my prediction is eventually, like the others, they'll get into some financial difficulties. And all you have to do is have a little bit of financial trouble, and it kind of ruins your prospects for the future. Mm. So I I worry about Fitbit's long-term prospects. In in the longer term, possibly. Um, But then, you know, you, you never know. Sometimes... You know, people can find a, a niche in the market and carry on regardless. So, um, yeah. I mean, I, I could realistically, yeah, I, I can't see them becoming, you know, uh, huge. But at the same time, they've done, they've had a good run and they you could maybe carve, carve themselves out a niche, you know, um, who knows. But anyway, but that's, the, moment, that's the key point, Simon. I think uh, you said you've hit the nail on the head is. If they can carve out a niche and, and maintain financial success in, inside that niche without trying to go toe to toe with Apple. Oh yeah, yeah. You know, and I don't, and and I don't they, think they've ever, you know, uh, I don't think that's yeah. ever even been their ambition. The truth be told, um, as they I say, other people's ambitions. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's you know, <laughs> definitely. But so yeah, so far, I mean, the Apple watches, despite all the you know, uh, poo pooing originally, it's um, basically it, it's. Well, according to that, it's now the Apple Watch. And if you don't want an Apple Watch, you want something cheaper, more for fitness, then, you know, people are going for this uh, Fitbit Versa. And Samsung and all these other ones are all falling by the wayside. I'm very excited about the prospects of the Apple Watch. It's only been out for three years now. And I think it's, you know, that we've got all of the future ahead of us for Apple to miniaturize even more, provide more battery life, to provide more features, like as they've added with LTE. So um, I, I think the computer on your wrist has a bright future. Indeed. Might even take over the phone itself someday. It, it might do. Um, and actually, that leads on quite nicely to this one I've, I've put in here. Uh, there was a comment from Om Malik. Uh, time is on Apple's side uh, from Om on Tech, uh, in, in which he was saying, you know, uh, to some extent, um, like the phone is almost the least important part of an Apple phone these days. Um, the watch part of, uh, you know, the Apple watch is almost the least significant part <laughs> of its function. <laughs> um, 
And I remember when I first got an iPhone, you know, people said to me, you're crazy, you paid £450 for a phone. It's like, yeah, but you don't get it, do you? It's not a phone. <laughs> right. It's not a phone. It's a computer in my pocket. Um, it's a window to the world. Exactly. Um, so there we go. Uh, here we are. Another piece on here. Ben Baharin uh, of Creative Strategies uh, estimates Apple has sold 52.7 million watches in total there we go um but yes uh what om is saying here very much is uh in a post internet society it is about fractionalized attention um so yeah the world today is about information streams notifications uh being connected and interacting with the real world the most irrelevant thing on the watch like the phone on the iphone is in fact the watch face <laughs> So there we go. It was a... I, I use my I use my watch quite a lot as a watch. <laughs> what? Did, yeah, yeah. I mean, I I do, but I I I get where he's coming from. I, I yes, think it, you know it obviously does a far more than that. But um, uh... tell, telling the time is almost a side effect <laughs> because um, yes, we do use it to look at the time, but uh, you also come to rely on it to you know tap your wrist and tell you that there's been an email or. You know that it's uh, time for a meeting, or you, know. you see, I can I can see that logic for the phone because I mean, when I look at my usage of the phone, um, quite often I, I think in the last in the last um, month um, I used uh, some data. Um, I think I made two. I sent two texts, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and I don't think I used the phone at all. So uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, my phone really isn't a phone. Uh, no, I, I just it's just useful when it is. It's um, just handy. But... It's just handy that it happens to be able to make phone calls. No. Yes. Whereas the watch, I'm not. I'm not quite sure. Sure, I'm completely with him on that. The watch is something else as well. I still think deep down that the watch is still a watch with some nice stuff added. Yeah, but I'd... I'm. I'm, I'm uh, I'm open to to the discussion that, that it might be far more than that for some people. Okay. If only there were more watch faces that had hours, minutes, and seconds. Yes. yes. My pet yeah. peeve. <laughs> yes. <gasps> yes. I've never figured out why Apple doesn't do that. I guess they figured that if you need minutes and seconds, you can go to the chronometer or some other device. But, but if you're using your watch and you want to time something uh, quickly, it's impossible. Well, I use I've, the, never, um... I've never quite understood why they haven't allowed, and I've said it before, I think, on this uh, podcast, why they haven't allowed people to design their own faces. I, well, I the, theory, the theory I've seen is that Apple wants to own the flavor of the watch to a certain, expect, to a certain extent. Yeah, that Apple get, kind of feels that, like they're except, the company that gets to dictate the design in yeah. order to promote the branding of the watch. and. The feeling is is that if people were allowed to design their own watch face, Apple would lose control of the of the branding and the design of the watch. That's what I've heard. Makes yeah, sense. I, you know, yeah. I could I could see that Apple do get sometimes a bit wrapped up in that sort of thing, don't they? But yeah, I I wish there were more watch faces just in general. To be honest. Yes. Um, yes. I, even even if Apple do just do them do some more of them themselves, <laughs> it'd be fine. Yeah, I mean, I have the, um, I don't know which one it is. I have the analog one with a second hand and and, right. and the yeah. date next to the three in a fairly traditional um, watch face manner. So, right. Well, I'll tell you what, boys. I'm going to uh, 
get myself a cup of tea. So I think what we should do is take five and we'll let uh, John Nemo open up his hardware store, if that's all right with you. Sounds good. Sounds good. Right. Take it away, John. Well, what do we have here? Kingston, K-I-N-G-S-T-O-N, Data, Traveler, Bolt, B-O-L-T, Duo Edition, 64 gigabyte. Live the moment. Capture more photos and videos. Website is kingstongo.com. www.kingston.com. We will have the link to this product in our show notes for episode 99 of Essential Apple Podcast. I am absolutely wild about this category of product, and this is the best one I have ever seen. It is a USB flash drive that works with your iPhone and iPad. It comes with a tiny little rubberized case and a little loop key ring that you can put anywhere on your keychain or wherever it's handy. The cost for the 32 gigabyte model is $60 US. The one they sent me, the 64 gigabyte model, is $90 US. And the big one, 128 gigabytes, is $120. US. You take the Bolt Duo out of its little rubber case. There are no instructions. There's no manual. Connect it to your phone, the lightning port of my iPhone 10 or iPhone X. I get a message, Bolt would like to communicate with a Kingston Data Traveler Bolt Duo. I tap on that. Ask me to allow. I do. It reads the Bolt Drive. And by the way, the very first time I did it, it pulled down the app just like that. So that was great. That's why there's no instructions. They want you to just plug this thing in and go. A very good thing is the lightning tip has a good long extension on it. So even if you have a large case on it, it will still work with your iPhone 10 or whichever model of iPhone you have with a lightning port. After it reads the drive, I have three options at the bottom. Transfer, Capture, and View. Then at the top, I can see what's on my iPhone and I can see what's on my Bolt. I had previously moved some items using the USB end onto the bolt. So I tap on the word view in the lower icon at the bottom. It shows that I've got 157 items and the pictures scroll as they appear. Here's a picture of some headphones. I tap on that and it pops right up. The response time is beautiful. Here's a PDF called the Beginner Guitar Guide from MerlesGuitarWorld.com. Basically, there's an entire filing system on here. So you can either use the Bolt's own apps under Transfer or Capture, or you can import stuff onto the Bolt and indirectly into a filing system on your iPhone or iPad using the app in the View mode. If I tap on Transfer right now, I can transfer everything, my photos, my videos, my favorites. If I tap Capture, I can access the camera and take a picture right onto the Bolt. So I strongly recommend this. This has the best app I've seen for this type of USB lightning hard drive. If you've never used one, it means you can extend the space and the capacity on your iPhone and iPad basically indefinitely for a reasonable cost. So I give this a strong Nemo's hardware thumbs up. Check out the web link at Essential Apple Podcast 99 show notes. Read what Kingston Go has to say, and I think you will believe this is a product we definitely want to stock in enormous quantity at Nemo's Hardware Store. Back next week.
Thank you, John, for the uh, hardware store. And, of course, all the links for that will be in the show notes and over on the Essential Apple website. So, um, John, you actually had one uh, a story in the Particle Debris this week. Um, machine learning versus, versus deep learning. Uh, and that caught my eye. Um, uh, I always enjoy your column, I must admit, and I do often mention it on here. But um, oh, thank you, thank you. Uh, the plain English guide to to machine learning versus deep learning, um, and as it says here, the business world often uses the terms machine learning, deep learning, and artificial intelligence as interchangeable buzzwords. Uh, the problem is each is uniquely different from its siblings, which is true. And uh, both Nick and I are of the get it right school <laughs> yeah um so yes. uh yeah so i thought we'd talk about that a bit um so uh do, do you want to kick us off on that one john sure this was an article that i found at uh hubspot that is from a researcher who wanted to make it clear what the distinctions were between what we call machine learning apple calls it you know ml in their in their presentations and and deep learning machine learning is an algorithm uh, it's a mathematical algorithm that can be used to, say, detect speech, do natural language processing, to recognize photos through mathematical algorithms. Um, and, and as such, it is capable of, through continued use, getting better and better at what it does, say, facial recognition. Um, I'll read from the article. A uh, deep learning algorithm is a subset of machine learning that stores massive amounts of data and sorts it into the right data set. As such, pattern recognition falls into a deep learning bucket. So machine learning doesn't necessarily involve massive data sets, but when you do use massive data sets, you're trying to extract trends and, and subsets and, and so on. So deep learning algorithms parse data to make informed decisions. So um, that's one of the things Netflix does to predict the, the shows you like, for example. So that's the, that's the basic difference between, between uh, machine learning and deep learning. Yeah, there we go. So, um, yeah, because, uh, you know, I don't have a problem with uh, all of this stuff. Some people, you know, really do get a bit um, wound up about it. The, the, the only thing that kind of annoys me uh, at the moment is the marketing trend to label everything as AI. And it's like, it's not AI. It's a combination of machine learning and pattern recognition, you numbskull. <laughs> but that's just because I get really pedantic about it. Well, um, one of the aspects of artificial intelligence is, is that there are so many different things the human brain does. And we've, we've struggled to figure out what the proper sort of combination of all those things is. You know, we learned in early days to teach a, a program to play chess or to play Go or to play checkers. We've learned to teach computers to recognize faces. But when it comes to intuiting the nature of the relationship between the, the speaker and the listener, we have a long way to go on that. And that's one of the sources of frustrations with Siri, because we ask a question of Siri and we have a human sense that it knows what we're trying to get to. And it doesn't sometimes. So, you know, you're out and about and you need to leave a message for your spouse. And so you say, hey, Siri, call my wife. And Siri says, oh, what about your life? <laughs> it, 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 doesn't, it doesn't know that you are 
um, in a situation where you need to make contact with another person, that you're mobile, uh, that uh, it doesn't intuit that life was the wrong word and wife was the right word because of the nature of your situation. So that's just uh, one aspect. Once you start, <clears throat> once you start um, adding in um, visual, <clears throat> visual clues as well, it gets even more complex, doesn't it? I was just thinking about um, a child uh, who says, uh, want a sandwich. And uh, a parent looking at the child and glaring at the child and the child reluctantly saying, please, <laughs> uh, that, that's, you know, that's, that's unspoken communication. <laughs> uh, and I think we've got a way to go before a, a computer can do that as well. <laughs> well, that article uh, uh, that I listed was just a preamble to some articles that were further on, on page right. two of article debris. And one of them was particularly scary, and that was the uh, article where researchers rigged up a little robot and put uh, subjects in a room with it and told it to, you know, here's how you turn the robot off. But first, you got to tell the robot you're going to turn it off. And then it goes, oh, yes, I, I read this. Yes. <laughs> you know, please don't turn me off. I'm, I'm afraid. I'm afraid, Dave, <laughs> uh, that they wouldn't be able to come back to life. That, that the, you know, and, then, and then they found that people were, were very reluctant. Yeah, do it's that. something like about fifty-seven percent wouldn't turn the robot off, or something like yeah. that. Yeah, it's quite a large number. Yeah. So the better we get at building AIs that intuit our thoughts and our feelings as humans, the better they're able to communicate with us. The more endearing they'll be, and the more difficult they'll be to deal with. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, and, and and the fact is, we want to anthropomorphize everything anyway. <laughs> yeah. So it's just playing into that desire to be able to make everything, you know. Uh, um, respond to us in a human way. Yeah, there we go. This is this was the the one that you labelled on it. New study finds it's harder to turn off a robot when it begs for its life. Yes, um, it's interesting. Though. I also mm. like this one. Why Westerners fear robots and the Japanese do not? Um, yes, I've read stuff like that before because that that we, we've we've got a very um, Terminator view of robots uh, in the West. Whereas the um, over in the east, they don't they don't have that. Um, they they they're quite happy with um, cuddly robots and you they know. Also have a historical reverence about the elders that I think maybe is lacking in in Western culture. And so, the Japanese industry is working very hard on robots that can assist the elderly yes. as a sort of a national imperative, uh, as a cultural prerogative, uh, not prerogative, imperative. I think, yes. Whereas we don't feel that way here. I, I think there's, um, I think there are two parts to that really. One, one is um, poss possibly religious. Um, in that, obviously, um, you know, a lot of Japanese are either Shintoists or Buddhists, and that doesn't particularly um, point the human species any um, particular privileges. Um, uh, you know, uh, uh, opposed to various animals or or whatever, as, as opposed to you know, uh, Judeo Christian um, and Islam. You yeah, know, where do that comes from? The, the human species is, you know, directly I... derived from God, and therefore, you know, you get this kind of Victorian thing of how we're very special and at the top of the tree. So I think that I might think have that comes from the human. I think that comes from the American West because. The island of Japan has always been the same size as forever. But in America, we started off on the East Coast 
and we moved west and we dominated and we grew and we built the west and we you know ch- the mountains challenged us and the and the wildlife challenged us and the distances and the transportation challenged us and we built railroads and and we and we sort of uh, what was what's the word sort of emerged triumphant as we flowed west and and that that sense of adventure and domination sort of set the culture for the supremacy of, of human beings and it's, yeah, nature and wildlife has suffered as a result. Right. And, but the other thing is, is that of course, um, robots in popular culture to a large extent in the West, uh, from their, you know, from the very inception of, uh, Ruritech's universal robots has very much the, the Frankenstein, uh, complex about it where, mm-hmm. you know, that, um, People create these things, uh, mostly, and then they turn against us, and mostly to enslave them. To be fair, yes. you know, and we create <laughs> these, we create these robots or whatever, you know, um, and you see it throughout science fiction books, science fiction stories, um, you know, in Alien, the synthetics, whatever. The, the synthetics are always kind of looked down on, and. Um, uh, you know what's an elegant contrast to that is Star Trek: The Next Generation, where we had Data as a benign, intelligent uh, companion and helper, and and a Starfleet officer and somebody of responsibility and and care. That yeah. was an interesting contrast to that, that, that culture. Is, that is that is true, and um, I, I mean, obviously, you can't say that it's uh, as a blanket statement. That not all Western science fiction or, or popular culture portrays robots as something that might turn on you, but there's a very much a heavy cultural bias mm, in yeah. the West to that kind of Frankenstein um, story where people create something and then it turns on them. Um, and often, you know, there's a kind of um, subtext, isn't there? You know, the, 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 the whole Frankenstein thing of not playing God, you know, you and it serves you right kind of thing the Japanese... there's a there's a great robot movie i recommend called robot and frank all right not familiar with that one i don't think frank langella plays a retired jewel thief okay and he's living alone now and his son realizes that his dad is kind of getting older and needs some uh oh daily no, is that the one that, yes yes and he teaches and... he teaches the robot or the android or whatever to become a bank robber Yes. Yes, yes I have it, seen it. I didn't charming... recognise the title, but that's it's brilliant. He kind of, and he tells the um, because the robot's not supposed to do anything wrong, is it? He tells it a load of you know bends the truth about um, uh-huh. why they're doing it's a charming things. Charming robot, really good. Highly yes, recommend it. It is. I've seen. I have seen it. I didn't recognise the oh, title. Look at that. Yes, it is, and it's very funny because he teaches the robot to become a jewel thief, <laughs> a bank robber. <laughs> He's retired. They decided to do so a bank. So he corrupts the robot instead of the other way around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's actually um, that's very good. Um, so, but the Japanese culture, you know, the anime thing and and whatnot. You know, robots. They they're the ones who are really big on these giant robots. You know, and um, their their popular culture is just full of robots, and they're very rarely um seen in the negative light that um. You know the androids yeah. or androids or uh, cyborgs or, or robots or whatever you want to call them are, are portrayed in you know in in the West. So uh... Uh, and, and, not only, and not only that, technology generally. I mean, um, 
uh, we were talking about electric vehicles earlier. China are going absolutely bonkers. <laughs> yeah. Selling electric vehicles. I mean, they are making more vehicles than anywhere else in the world at the moment. And um, actually, you know, in a way, you've got to look at that and you've got to think, well, good for them, because although from a Western point of, of view, and, and I'm not going to get involved in the politics because that's a whole different ball game, but yes. yeah. um, like industrially, for a long time, you know, we looked at China and, and considered it to be rather backward. You know, you saw those things of Peking and, you know, everybody was riding bicycles because yes. they didn't have any cars. and the, But in some ways you think, well, now they're moving forward. Look at this. Good for them. They're kind of almost skipping. Uh, yes, certain parts of China are horribly polluted. And during, you know, they did all sorts of things because they were driven by the communist ideal to do this or that. But at the same time, as I understand it, the Chinese have actually uh, completely done away with the burning of fossil fuels to create electricity. Yeah, they're, they're, they're certainly heading very rapidly if, in that if, direction. If they're not there yet, that that's their, uh, you know, avowed aim. Um, and, because, and, and because of the nature of their um, political, their political nature of their, of their, of their country, they're able to push it through very quickly. Yes. You know, uh, without like, any kind of uh, objection. Well, without without any were. objection. I'm for, yes, you know, whether you like it or not, uh, you know, in a communist uh, country, coming. if they say this is what's happening, that's what's going to happen. If they say we're not going to have any petrol cars, they will all be electric within the next five years. That's what's going to happen, no matter yeah. what. Um, Can I explore it, something real quickly, Simon? Yeah, of course. Just to just take a minute here. At the end of this Wired article on why Westerners fear robots, is an astounding last sentence, and it's really important. It says... Robots may help us imagine that perhaps humans are just one instance of consciousness and that humanity is a bit overrated. Rather than just being human-centric, we must develop a respect for an emotional, spiritual dialogue with all things. That is a very profound paragraph. And the first thing I thought of was is that, you know, there's this Fermi paradox. Where are the aliens? Yeah. It could well be that until we've learned how to respect artificial intelligence beings and robots and creations of our own until we've come to recognize our place in partnership with other intelligences, aliens have no interest in talking to us. Yeah, well, maybe. I've, I've, um, <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> I've, I've, uh, I've often thought about this. I mean, there are, there are a variety of, of ways that, you know, you can say, why have we not come across any aliens? But one, um, how realistic it is or not, I can't say. But one one thing that always crosses my mind is, if you were a, a bunch of uh, you know galactic spanning uh, intelligent alien species, would you really want to come and talk to the people of Earth? No, I think you'd put a big fence around it and go <laughs> dangerous savages. That's you right. Know? Not, right. not, Sorry, I didn't mean to get us off track. There, no, but no, I just but, to, no, I, I, I really do. I think you would, you would very much want to put up a sign saying, "Don't go there." You know, cannibals live here. Um, so they, yes. they don't respect the animals on their own planet. Well, they're, they're not going to respect that. They're not, yeah, uh, exactly. Um, you know, yeah, perhaps, danger. Perhaps it'll help us to respect one another as well. <laughs> yes, yes. So yes, that well, well spotted, John. That's uh, that's very good. Um, so where were we? Uh, yeah, we. Uh, no, uh, the Chinese, um, you know, in some ways, they're skipping over a whole thing of, you know, everybody owning these gas-guzzling resource-consuming oh, yeah. yeah. and going, yes. OK, we can, you know, you might want to move on from all having to have uh, bicycles, you know, communist-approved uh, standard bicycle number one, but we can at least say, well, you know, you can all have the um, 
Ying, you know, the Ying Ping Leaf Number Two. Uh, <laughs> yes, but, you know there. <laughs> There are sometimes parts of it which you look at and think, well, there, maybe there are some benefits to a central control. I'm not going to go into politics, but uh, no. There we are. Yeah. Um, sometimes, it ma- sometimes it makes business easier, doesn't it? Yes. Sometimes it <laughs> makes, you know, it, it, yeah, exactly. Um, no. Well, I think we're um, coming towards the end now. Um Microsoft Surface Go was released. Um, I've got a couple of uh, links there. Um, well, we've talked about the Microsoft Go uh, before, and uh, Warren says he's likely to buy one, so I think I might leave that until Warren comes on and can actually tell us what it's like in person. Mm-hmm. Um, Security-wise, um, apparently CCleaner, uh, which is you know fairly widely um, praised as a good quality product on the Mac, uh, has now introduced data collection with no way to opt out, apparently. Um, and I think Dougie in the Slack room sent us this one. Um, and if it's Pretty true, great. I think it's slightly sad. Um, Have they... Do, do they sell in the UK? Uh, what, the sea cleaner? Yeah. Uh, yes. Yeah, it's... Um, it's fairly... well, under GD... Can they do that under GDPR? <laughs> I, well, I don't know. I don't know. It appears that the Avast-owned software... Available under Piriform is once again criticised, this time due to software changes in the latest release. It says that more detailed reporting for bug fixes and product improvements has been added. Um, Privacy experts worry this statement only serves to cover data collection intentions and the newly added monitoring elements are called active monitoring and heartbeat. Um, Mm. So, unfortunately, uh, a product which has been fairly widely praised in the past uh seems they might not uh might not be as privacy friendly as they uh once were I no, must that's a, i mean certainly for a certainly for a uk company they wouldn't get away with that now no um but they belong to a vast i, I don't know who runs a vast are they are they an american company i'm not sure i don't um, know no anyway doesn't matter there we go so uh just be aware if you use CCleaner, the latest update may be re- uh, sending more information about you uh, back to CCleaner uh, headquarters than you were previously aware. Um, yeah, it takes an awful lot of self-discipline and courage to build an app this, these days without sitting down and saying, how are we going to design, design this app to communicate in the background? How are we going to design this app to monetize itself? Uh, the, the days of designing a Mac app to just do a task and just sit there and do its thing for you mm. um, are about over, it seems. You have to yeah. be very careful. Yeah, I think it's a lot more complex than it once was. Oh, definitely. No. But that's, that's part of the nature of moving away from from sort of nascent uh, app store type stuff. I mean, it's quite natural, I think, over time that it becomes more complex. But it's also, a, a, I think, to maybe... Um throw sea cleaner a line here as it were uh not having delved too deeply into it but at the same time you know what with with you know the the smart speakers and the uh you know smart assistants and siri and people want their apps to be smarter they want their apps to be able to intercommunicate they want their apps to quote unquote intelligently you know um hand off tasks to other applications and so on and of course you can't have that without the applications gathering information about what you do and when you do it and why you do it and how you do it so um you know i would like to see something in mac os like gatekeeper extended 
where it does the reverse process, where it says, oh, hey, I'm, this is Siri, I'm, an, I'm your friendly AI agent. I've noticed that the text, ex- text editor you just bought is uploading your text to this IP address. Mm. Would you like me to stop that? And you say, oh, please, go ahead, stop it. <laughs> go ahead and stop it. Um, yeah. I, I will mention, um, and I'm sure you're aware of it, John, probably the closest to that, uh, although it's, you know, it's it's not smart in any sense, is uh, Little Snitch. Yes. From Objective Technologies, which will monitor for you what uh, apps are trying to, you know, call out. It's like a reverse firewall for people who are not familiar with it. And yeah. instead of stopping stuff coming in, it tells you what stuff is trying to go out and you can build various rules and whatnot. But yeah, I, I agree with you. It, it's becoming harder and harder to know all the time what apps are, you know, possibly up to in the background. Um, That's why I think it's a good idea to be very introspective about what apps you buy outside the Mac App Store. Uh, yeah. Yes. Yes, very much so. I, I'm not saying I'd get everything from the Mac App Store, um, but... Uh, I think there are a, cu- a couple of things on my machine I bought outside, but the vast majority come from within the App Store now. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, uh, I've got some things which uh, are not are not or were not allowed on the App Store due to sandboxing rules. Yeah. Um, I think some of the rogue amoeba things were uh, either not in there or were withdrawn due to problems with the sandboxing. But yeah, we know Paul Kafafis and we know Rogue Amiga and they're a hero and we trust them. Oh, yes, indeed. But, very much so. so. And I think uh, Barebones software went round and round with Apple on the Mac App Store. Yes, I think they did. Yet it's back there. Well, that, that which was is nice to see. Sort of um, that came out of this revamping of the store at WWDC, didn't it? So they've obviously made some kind of. Um, arrangement with with various people um about how sandboxing is handling handled um and also in security malware bytes comes to ios with scam call blocking spam text filtering web protection and more although uh, i don't believe this is yet available in the uk uh, which is a bit sad because Shame. i i uh I, i'm not yet a hundred percent uh, convinced that I need a malware uh, blocker on my iOS device. However, I, you know, I have malware bytes on my Mac or um, safety, and I, I certainly would not object to having it on my thing. But I don't believe that it's yet available in the UK. Um, so there we go. Um, hopefully, mm-hmm. it will be soon if it isn't already. So uh, there we go. Because uh, yeah, malware bytes is a fabulous product. Absolutely excellent. Um, and there we go. Uh, well, I think we've pretty much done it all, haven't we? Is there anything yeah. anybody else wants to bring to uh, bring to the fore? That's it for me. Yep. I think um, we... I've got a worth a chirp. Oh, um, put it, was... it in then, Nick. Yeah, go on then. Uh, yeah, this is uh, something that Alison talked about on her show a few weeks ago, and I've been using it, and I really, really like it. And it's called Hash Photos. So if you're like me and you're not really into editing photos in a big way, but you like to be able to sort of crop something very quickly or, uh, you know, do some very minor alterations to your photos, but you like something that actually presents your photos in a really nice way, uh, then I recommend hash photos. It plugs straight into your um, photos library. Uh, So when you make an alteration in hash photos, that's copied across to your photos library. So you don't have to hold your photos somewhere else. Um, It's a really cool... I never really got on with photos. I loved iPhoto, 
never, I don't know what it was about photos, but something that just didn't click with me. Uh, but hash photos, I really like, so I'd recommend that. Okay, I'll just bring this up, and it says, Hash Photos, the ultimate photo manager and editor for iOS. There we go. Yes, it's only for iOS, so um, unfortunately, it'd be really nice if there was a Mac client as well, but there isn't. Maybe one day. Well, maybe, you know, maybe next year when this whole um, iOS uh, apps on Mac gets a yes. chance. Yeah, that'd be really cool if it did, because it, it, I'd say, for me, it just works just right. Well, it's nice. We'll put that one in there then. I'll put that in the in the notes. Well, boys, um, I don't have a worship worth a chirp of anything this week. Um, so I I think I'll just uh wind it up. So uh, Nick, would you like to promote anywhere that people can find you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter uh, under Spligosh. S P L I G O S H. That's fine. And uh, John, I am senior editor at the Mac Observer. www.macobserver one word. Dot com, And come and listen to my podcast called Background Mode. We have a tab at the top called Podcasts, and we do a lot of them. So come and listen when you can. Very good. Uh, right. And I am, of course, on Twitter as at Serenak, and that's S-E-R-E-N-A-K. Uh, the show is at Essential Apple. The website is EssentialApple.com. Uh, and... I'd like to say, of course, that you can find us in the Slack room. You don't need an invitation anymore. Simply look in the show notes or on the website and follow the link to join into the chatter in the Slack. And uh, that's it. I think we'll uh, say goodbye. So till next time, goodbye, everybody. Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for having me. No problem. And I think we'll call that a wrap. Thank you, John. All right. Hey, that was fun. This has been the Essential Apple podcast, and uh, I'd just like to say that uh, if you enjoy the show and would like to support us, go over to EssentialApple.com and you can take a look at the Patreon or the Pinecast Tips Jar, where you can either make a single donation or you can make uh, a regular subscription, and all the money that you donate will go towards paying for the things like hosting and better microphones and such like. And of course, a very special thank you to those of you who already do support the show. We really do appreciate it. Thank you very much. We are part of the MyMac Podcasting Network, where you can find such shows as Tech Fan with Tim and Dave, my Mac with Guy and Gaz, the three geeky ladies, the geekiest show ever, uh, the excellent Bart Bouchotts with his Let's Talk, the Club Nintendo, um, and probably some that I forgot. So why not head over to MyMac.com, download a show, and take a listen. Hi, I'm Bart Bouchotts, host of the Let's Talk Apple podcast. Every month I gather together a panel of Apple followers and we digest the month's Apple news. Our aim is to step back and take a 40,000 foot view of all things Apple. We're the perfect complement to the many great daily news shows out there. Listen and subscribe at www.letstalk.ie Be the essential apple podcast.
Bye and thank you for listening.